0: Welcome to the New Models Podcast. On this episode, we talk with Tim Huang, best described as the busiest man on the internet. His new book, Subprime Attention Crisis, maps out the shady world of the online advertising bubble. He's also a research fellow at the Center for Security and Emerging Technology at Georgetown University. And he's a former director of the Harvard-MIT Ethics and Governance of AI Initiative, the 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 former global public policy. The list is too long, so we'll just say this. Tim is in the world of big tech, but not of it. And this conversation offers plenty of actionable hot takes about online advertising, machine learning, and platform cooperatism in the near future. I'm Lil' Internet, joined by New Models co-founder, Carly Busta, and artist, Daniel Keller. Our guest is Tim Huang. Let's get into it. So we're here right now with Tim Huang. I, well, I don't know. I guess he's called the busiest man on the internet. Everything <laughs> he does is really... He's, hes does so many cool... He's involved in a lot of cool projects. But he popped up in the feed again, I guess, on Twitter for a new project he's working on. And I noticed he was following me. And I was like, oh, great. Uh, he sounds like a perfect person for the podcast. He's already following me <laughs> somehow. And then I realized it was... RaffleCon. The first RaffleCon in Boston. Uh, That's right. Th- uh, Tim put together RaffleCon, which was a very early meme conference. Say what RaffleCon stands like for. Like
1: R-O-F-L-Con. Yeah, yeah
0: R-O-F-L-Con. Con. Um, and I ended up doing the a- after party, uh, my party heartthrob in Boston at the time. We, we did the after party for RaffleCon, ended up sneaking uh, moot into the venue with a fake ID. Uh, he was like 10? He was, I think he was like 18 or something like that, 19. But still, that was a, a night to remember. Uh, and also, I looked through, tried to find what. like our emails were January 2008. And mm. in the email to you, for some reason, I said... 4chan is the most dangerous website in the world in, in 2008, and I feel like I was rather prescient uh, about that. Yeah, ahead of your time. But anyways, I wonder what uh, where your head is at and what you're working on now 12 years later. Uh,
2: I guess, yeah, a lot has happened. The internet has really changed. Um, I guess there's two things that have really been on my mind. Um, one of them is, and I've been working on this project for a little time now, but I've been really interested in visual representations of Mark Zuckerberg um, this is something that <laughs> me and a few friends a few years back created an academic journal that we call the California Review of Images and Mark Zuckerberg, where people do visual critiques of images in which he appears. And it's just been very much on my mind again, the, that photo that was floating around the internet yeah. last week of uh, him on a surfboard. <laughs> um, and so I've been I've been thinking a lot about this visual culture of how people represent tech and tech CEOs. And then the second one is I've got a, a book that tries to make the argument that this ad financial engine of the web is really a lot shakier than it looks, and created a new project to encourage people to leak information about the ad industry to the world.
0: And that project's called Ad Leaker, but is it to try to get people to dish secrets on how these numbers are manipulated, inflated, etc.?
2: Yeah, I think that's right. You know, the advertising industry loves telling you that it works, right? That they've mm. basically created a mind control device uh, that can reach into your mind and tell you what to think. But when you look at the reality of a lot of it's garbage, actually, it doesn't work at all. And so uh, I am really interested in seeing if it's possible to get numbers from behind the curtain. So I'm hoping it becomes a general channel by which people can improve the transparency of the industry.
3: I almost want to pause on that. Um, yep. I wonder what your research, in researching this, if you did look at analog forms of advertising and the efficacy of you know good old print ads. Yeah,
2: these traditional modes of advertising, they're equally hard to measure, if not more difficult to measure Uh, But there's some evidence to suggest that they may be more effective or in the very least as effective as what we see online. And that all of this quote unquote data driven advertising really isn't making things any more or less persuasive. In fact, it's going to encourage a lot more garbage to exist in the space. Right,
3: because yeah. there's always Nielsen reports, right? Like how long someone spent watching an ad, if they changed the channel, when they changed the channel. The ad business has long been a bullshit business, and it served more to focus the client uh, about what their product is really selling.
2: Totally. Yeah, I think um, one of the funny things that came up in the book was reading a lot of the rhetoric of Silicon Valley companies, you know, circa the early 2000s. And they basically were making lots of arguments like, oh, well, you know, you should advertise on Google because it's just a lot more measurable. It's a lot more data driven <laughs> than traditional advertising. And it's interesting is like, as the years have gone by, now ad agencies say things like, well, you know, it's not really about the numbers. You know, online advertising is all about brand advertising and positioning. And these things are very hard to measure. And so it's kind of funny we ended up where we began, you know?
3: Right. I mean, without getting too much into your book, but to tease us, to what degree do you go into influencer culture and these post-web two forms of, of nudging or influencing or uh, advertising through non-traditional means?
2: Uh, I go into it less, actually, although I think it's actually a really interesting part of the ecosystem. That's kind of like in some ways the most visible parts of the ad industry. But 90% of online ads is, is algorithmically driven, essentially like high frequency trading that's happening online. Right. So the book is a lot more about that, that plumbing piece of it.
1: Just to get a little bit basic, but what do you think is fundamentally broken about online advertising?
2: This is, in some ways, kind of the, the crux of the book. I go into a couple of big problems with ad effectiveness and whether or not ads work at all. The rise of ad blocking or the, the fact that ad fraud is this enormous industry. The most important sort of argument in this is it actually turns out that not a whole lot of people are paying attention to ads. right? right? And right. there's actually this sort of demographic pattern to it, right? Which is like the people who are really clicking on ads and really powering the internet are like not people you think of as young internet people, right? They mm-hmm. tend to be like an older demographic, and so I think one of the things you can think about is like, okay, over the long term, over the 10 or 20 or 30 years, those people will die off. Those people will disappear. Right. And if
1: that's the case, you can wonder about like, okay, well, what's left after that? <laughs> so, Okay, so online advertising <laughs> is just cable news. It's the same <laughs> issue. You never would think that, but, but that uh, is that is interesting. I
3: mean, to add another, I come not from tech, but more from the humanities. And when we think about the historical role of advertising, it was always to provide context for the editorial. It legitimized the editorial in a way, right? You have a Yves Saint Laurent ad, next to a text, suddenly that text takes on a certain sheen as opposed to a shampoo ad or something, right? Right, and, right. And so I wonder, and when we think of boomers, we think of older generations and how advertising was a place of myth building, of aspiration building, why one slogged through the 95 job because they wanted the Lexus or like whatever. I think right. it's like, I wonder if the breakdown in advertising is in part a loss of faith in this identity building through consumerism. Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's
2: right. So I think everybody's always looking to try to build this persuasion engine, Mm -hmm. right? And it's a pretty compelling idea to think that what we think of as advertising is actually, it's like a historically provisional thing, Mm -hmm. right? That like maybe at some point, some of these channels just become like totally obsolete right? Like right. That putting an image next to an article no longer really shapes how people think about themselves. Or like, no one really wants to like aspire to get the Buick just because they see the Buick like riding through like a desert landscape or something like that. I think there's a dream, particularly among the people who are like in this very data-driven ad world, which is we just collect enough data that we can calculate persuasion, <laughs> like to try to turn it into this data-driven science. And I, I guess I just feel like if it ever happens, it's a long way away from now. Yeah, I
0: know anecdotally from my own experience, I have been caught by Instagram ads. Like, they've got me before.
3: But they're and not I, aspirational. Mm-hmm. If there's something that's kind of lowbrow about it, or not even, it's like mediumbrow. It like meets you where you are. The data tracks who you are. It doesn't like click it up a few notches and make it aspirational. Mm. I feel like.
1: I mean, it's something about direct to consumer branding. I think is very specific because it yeah. is for millennials and it's, you know, right. about their you know, economic situation. I mean, I just wonder though, if clearly big tech is really good at capturing our attention or distracting us at the very least, like, why are? they so bad at advertising because it seems like <laughs> if you're good at one you'd be able to be good at the other. How is it is it possible to make advertising as compelling as the content or is that just the fundamental issue there?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it goes to the question of like, what you think advertising is, right? So, uh, you know, I always think about like something like Craigslist, right? No one really thinks about Craigslist as like a website of ads, mm-hmm. largely because like when you go on there, you're like already looking for something. Uh, but, like basically ads are like, a category that we use to refer to everything that we don't want to see in some ways. <laughs> right. And you know, the seeds of the problem are sort of built into the definition itself. And one thing this conversation makes me think a lot about is when Facebook was getting called up before all these congressional hearings, they were doing all these nationwide billboards and ads being like, Facebook really cares about the truth and like we're really doing our best. (laughs) And I thought like, who is looking at these billboards and being like, oh, well, oh, they must definitely be doing a good job then, right? It's like persuading no one. But I think one theory for why companies do this kind of advertising is that it's actually a persuasion for themselves. Right. That like basically people in the company can be like, yeah, we are doing a good job, you know? And so there's a theory of advertising that is like purely about internal politics within large corporations right. advertising right.
3: for annual reports. Wait, but you're something.
0: saying where was the billboard? All over uh, America. All, all over America.
2: Largely, saw so the ads like they were in subways. I, I didn't see the TV ones. They, I'm sure that they're online somewhere. So. But <laughs> yeah. it's
3: interesting when you think about like the post Warholian ad space in the late '90s, the heyday of. I mean, ad agencies were competitive to be like the, as witty as possible, mm-hmm. as surprising as possible. Huge budgets. I mean, same thing with music videos, right? There'd be huge budgets for these little packets of attention grabbing media. And um, I feel like one of the things that's so disappointing about internet. Ads is that they're just so they're they're just so uncreative. I mean, I hate to say this, they're uninspiring, as if ads should be inspiring. But they are. I mean, I don't actually think that ads are the thing you don't want to see. I think that they're ideally the thing that tells you how capital enters into how you form your life. I mean, that that's been the 20th century model anyway. Obviously, we're changing, but it does strike me how boring the internet ads are. How little they try. Now they may spend a lot of money on them, but they just seem so insipid. Um, I don't know if that factors in. But but it does, as a consumer. I
1: mean, I think you're also, like, we do have to make the distinction about, like, yeah, influencers, Banner ads, right, You know, right. ad text and Google, uh, you know, certain
3: like the search results crisis. showing up. Like you know. the you know they there was that great mashup that took all the different corona ads and every single one followed the exact oh, yeah, the same sound. script. Right. right. I do
1: wonder how that gets so homogenized. Is right. that because of data or yeah? Do you know? I mean, did you see? Do you know what we were talking about? This one compilation. Uh,
2: I I didn't see it, but I assume it's like phrases like
1: in these unprecedented exactly. times. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Now now more than soul. ever. With
3: incredibly similar no, melancholic in soul.
1: Melancholic, turning into hopeful (laughs) by the end. Getting
3: heatier by a little beat that accelerates. Yes.
1: Smiling customer service people.
3: And so it seems like across the board, we've had a degradation of like creativity. Or I mean, Mm. again, I mean, ads shouldn't necessarily be creative. But
0: but. it also seems to me like part of it is just a phenomenon of being data driven, right? Right. Whereas. If something works you repeat it. I mean remember the dancing guy mortgage ads oh, that were yeah. right? What the the, hell? the the thing is the data just showed that it worked really really well for whatever reason. So you end up with the creative logic taken out of it and it being purely repeating things that are proven to work through data. Yeah. Right? I mean it's
1: fundamentally just like it's like a predictive algorithm and it right. has the same problems. I mean, actually, that would be a good pivot if we could start talking about AI because mm. this is a, the kind of the fundamental issue there too is the limits of that. Um, yeah sure.
0: I mean, uh, I w- just one, one thing, I just wanted to talk about one IRL-targeted ad I've seen. And the Facebook billboard, this is something kind of reminded me of, it. and I thought, well, maybe they put up the billboard, like, close to in, in D.C., where the politicians mm-hmm. actually are, right? But I remember being uh, in, uh, I, I know, also in, in pitches. Like, I remember one time I worked for a company, and we did a big pitch for a cable channel, so they actually bought billboard space that they knew <laughs> was on the way to work for the people who worked at Comcast, so that just they would see it. Right. But it goes, I remember being in the eastern shore of Virginia, stopping at a gas station that still had a video rental store, a, like mom and pop video rental store attached to it. This was in the Netflix era. And across from this gas station, the middle of nowhere, was a giant billboard for like BAE systems with like <laughs> a rocket launching like a satellite. And it was like launched with BAE systems. And it was near the, um, the eastern shore head has a satellite wallop spaceport, I think, or some spaceport. But just, you know, that billboard is only for a few people who work there driving by and seeing mm. it. But everyone else driving along, uh, you know, tourists or just people who live there are seeing like billboards for like launching satellites and spaceflight. And it's Next just to like mom and pop videos. Yeah, are. just <laughs> such a bizarre juxtaposition. But I mean, yeah, targeted ads are certainly predated the internet yeah, right, uh, right. putting up. But but I, actually, one more thing before we pivot, mm. though, sorry, is um, there's different ad networks, right? And there's different types of, there's Instagram advertising, then there's Google, like AdSense. Did you find which ones were the most rotten and ineffectual mm. and bullshit versus the ones that actually seem to work? Yeah, so the ones
2: that seem most fraudulent, uh, there's two kinds of markets. One of them is programmatic banner ads, That are not in like Facebook or Google. Mm. So, like all those weird ad networks, that's definitely one space. The other one is advertising on apps.
3: Oh, right. Like the Android ecosystem. In game ads. ads. Yeah,
2: yeah, it's like total garbage. And it's actually frequently like organized crime is involved. Oh, really? (laughs) Nice. Uh, How so? Yeah. Well, so uh, ad fraud, right? Huge business. You can actually make a ton of money doing ad fraud. And so the way some of this happens is essentially that you have software that is compromising people's phones and then you're driving traffic to certain places. Uh, And it turns out that the people who have the infrastructure to do large scale compromise of a lot of phones are
1: organized crime. Which, I'm just out of curiosity, which organized, like where, what organized (laughs) criminals
2: uh, yeah, there's a couple of actually articles that came out just last year. A lot of it's Eastern Europe. Yeah. I was assuming Monty just <laughs> wasn't sure. But
0: yeah.
2: Um, I mean, it's a complimentary business, you know. So. Right, exactly.
0: And I mean, they operate, I'm assuming the same way like Spotify fraud operates, where you'll see a surreal stock image and some band name that's a word that would be maybe commonly in song titles, right? And there'll right. be these like computer generated MIDI tracks that just sound like eerily bizarre and album after album. And then if you look at where the fans are located, it's five like kind of weird suburban cities in England where the stream farms are Mm -hmm. or something, right? That are just playing these songs on loop to get them the royalties from Spotify. Uh, And I guess there's like click farms and like, I mean, in some cases, I guess the agencies themselves might engage in this kind of fraud to inflate the data they show to the client. Uh, Yeah, I mean,
2: one of the arguments for why this is a bubble is that not a whole lot of people have incentives to break Mm -hmm. ranks here,
3: Mm. right?
2: Like the agencies make money if the wheel keeps turning, so...
3: And the platforms don't care?
2: Uh, I think, I mean, it's a little bit of a frenemies type relationship. I mean, this is the classic problem of like, say, bots on social media, Mm. right? Which is like, you want enough to inflate your user numbers, but Mm. not so much it becomes clear that it's all bots. And so you kind of have to play a little bit of a game there.
0: And I mean, which of the gaff or whatever the big platforms, you know, this bubble popping, who will it affect the most? If anything, I think Facebook is most in the crosshairs on this.
2: Um, The reason being is that there's a pretty good argument that search in certain cases, like works, actually works. Uh, And in some ways, it's the same sort of logic as the Craigslist argument, right? If you're like searching for mesothelioma or like any of these keywords that are really expensive, it's usually because you have a rare medical problem and like you really need help right now
1: so wait, I'm sorry I just mesotheliomia is that's an expensive yeah. keyword oh, what, are, yeah. what are some other expensive keywords I'm just wondering
2: uh so yeah so anything that's like class action related okay right yeah. because you basically have like lawyers trying to get people searching for those terms and the only reason you would search for that term is because you have that problem
3: so for those like myself how how does a word become expensive where is it staked
2: yeah sure I mean the name of the book is subprime attention crisis right. because it's parallel <laughs> to the financial markets and, and it actually works very much the same way People bid on the right to show you an ad for a particular keyword. Hmm. And so the, so the more demand there is, the more pressure there is to auction that price up.
3: Fascinating. Um,
2: and so you end up having words kind of fluctuate in value over time.
3: Are there some words that are banned?
2: Google has occasionally made a policy decision, for example, like they don't want you advertising against payday loans because they feel Mm. payday loans are a social ill, which they are.
0: So again, the advertising operating sort of like uh, machine learning or permutations, tested, whatever works the best. That's the way... Rap beats work today as well, (laughs) interestingly enough. But Dan, you wanted to pivot to AI since we're... Well,
1: GPT-3 seems like a major milestone. And I have heard some people talking about it being, we're nearing the limits of predictive machine learning in general. What's
3: GPT-3 for those who don't know?
1: Uh, Well, maybe he could say better (laughs) than I, but my understanding is it's OpenAI. They upgraded their artificial language processing machine learning system, which is something like a 100 times the scale of GPT-2, which was the previous industry standard.
2: Is that accurate? One of the primary uses is to generate text. Right.
1: right, so you were the former director of the Harvard-MIT Ethics and Governance of AI initiative. So just briefly, what was your purview while you were doing that? Sure, so it probably makes
2: most sense in the context of the gig that I had before that. So I used to run global public policy for Google on AI machine learning. And so effectively, that was the team that was responsible for responding to governments when they get in touch with Google and say, are your AIs going to replace all the jobs? Or like, how do you ensure your AI is fair? Right. And so effectively, I spent two years writing corporate talking points. And then I got a job to work for two years throwing rocks at all those talking points.
0: <laughs> <basically>.
2: <laughs> and so this is like a philanthropic project to give grants to various activists working on fair and ethical AI.
1: I mean, I've heard some criticisms of the whole initiative, more or less saying that it was a smokescreen for these private companies to evade regulation and take control of guiding those ethical concerns themselves. But you're saying that that wasn't the case, and you were working actively against the talking points that you were making just a couple of years before, right? Um, so you might be talking about the partnership on AI. Is that right? I mean, I'm I'm relaying things that I've read, so I don't know specifically <laughs> what the criticism was, yeah, there, and I don't there, necessarily I mean, agree, I, but yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, and I'm happy to talk about it. uh, That criticism, because basically the project I was working on was all philanthropically funded. So it stood away from any corporate interference. But the partnership on AI has taken some criticism on that. So that was essentially a kind of nonprofit entity that was designed to create ethical standards around AI. And I think took flack largely because there was a bunch of huge corporations on the board.
1: What do you think are the near-term biggest ethical concerns that you're worried with as far as machine learning? So there's two types of critiques against AI.
2: And I think the biggest one is there's very strong capitalist pressures to try to get this technology integrated everywhere. But in many cases, the technology is it's either not designed to do what it's being asked to do or it doesn't do it very well so there's a couple problems right like we should use machine learning to tell from your face whether or not you're going to be a criminal which has the entire legacy of racist technology the other one is basically like oh well we can use machine learning to diagnose this type of disease but it actually just turns out that it does that at like very different rates for different types of people so i think there's two distinct types of problems but both of them are pretty big near-term concerns
3: Hmm. (laughs) Yeah.
1: <laughs> I was
2: wondering if you and have anything the,
3: else. Sorry. The phrase not doing what it purports to do, that seems to be interesting territory. I am, I'm interested in that. I'm also interested in uh, how you speak about art. And um, I wonder if for you, those things that can get away with not doing what they say they're going to do, if that's how the category of art comes into play. Because I know some of the projects you've done um, with the Awesome Foundation, for instance, they've made space for art to happen. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess I'm throwing various different core coordinates at you, but how does that term apply to art or, yeah, how would you define art?
1: I mean, <laughs> that's okay, that's it's a, big a before, we, <laughs> we, before we pivot completely there, um, I mean, one of the things... As far as like it not doing what it's supposed to do, there's also the inverse of that. For instance, like GPT-3, one of the most interesting things to me about GPT-3 is that it can sort of like accidentally write code really effectively. Uh And maybe that does interface with what is art is the sort of unexpected results. So maybe there's something there. It's not all bad.
3: Yeah, the inverse is when something like AI does something in surplus to what it's supposed to do. Maybe before we get into the art question. I also
1: think about, about art, I think one of the main issues is representation and the bias that these models show. And the main issue is that it replicates the same biases that exist in society. I've always read as one of the main concerns there, but I do wonder, what are the ethical concerns of stamping that kind of bias out intentionally, even if it exists? So so one of the debates
2: is happening in the world of facial recognition systems. And so a lot of people have criticized these facial recognition systems saying, look, you have largely trained these systems on photos of faces with light-colored skin, Mm -hmm. right? And so that facial recognition systems are just way better at detecting white faces than they are at detecting dark faces. And I think like some people have said, okay, so what we should do is work to try to make these machines more fair. We should train them on more diverse data so they can do a better job at detecting everybody. Now I think there's a critique on that critique, which is basically like, well, mostly facial recognition systems are used for like policing and surveillance, right? So like, do we actually really want to improve these systems in this particular way? And I think there is sort of like these interesting, there's many layers on which problems can emerge. But I think one of the problems is like, how much of it is the fairness in the workflow of these systems? And then how much of it is fairness in like the deployment of these systems? Hmm. And those are two classes of problems that are being worked out.
1: What are the problems in the workflow exactly? How would you define those two? That's-
2: so the canonical one is basically like, it'll find correlations even if there's no real causation there. right? So the great example of that is, I'll show you a face. And you tell me how criminal the person is. There's no relationship between those two things. But if you run it through a machine learning algorithm, it will find a correlation and it will render some kind of result, but it's garbage in, garbage out. And so in the construction of these systems, Can we design them
1: in a way that don't produce these types of problems?
3: It sounds like someone reading a tweet, though, right? Like, it can find a negative connection if it has the right framework.
1: Right, but I also do wonder just, like, does it work in a crude way? Like, does it work even if it's in an unfair way? And I do wonder then, like, what does fairness even mean? And, like, what does effectiveness mean? Especially with policing stuff. Does it do the job it's supposed to do in a way that is unfair and <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. There's just some. Does it mean it's catching more criminals? It's catching a specific type of criminal? It's, you know, accounting for bias in which criminals usually have gotten caught before? I just do wonder. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, I wonder yeah. also
0: if it just ends up operating as the sort of high tech version of the drug sniffer dog, which is, mm-hmm. you know, those do- the dogs are accurate, something like 30 percent of the time. But if they signal on your car, you suddenly have probable cause mm-hmm. to search the car. Right. So the, it just becomes a device that of an excuse to violate privacy or police more. Or Right. Uh, I don't know, if Tim, if you know more about this, though, of actually how accurate it is, or if it's more like a drug sniffing dog where the accuracy doesn't matter, it just gives probable cause and reason. But for also a lot to, of it is
1: geographical and about where right. things get where, where resources get allocated. But and I that wonder. of course is a correlation thing and it, you know, will find Absolutely. more crime where it's being sent right. to find more crime. I mean,
3: but yeah. how is the conversation or has the conversation changed at all since the murder of George Floyd? Yeah, I mean, I think it. it
2: I, I think in some ways, it's intensified a lot of these issues. Like a lot of the technology that you're seeing being deployed by police to, you know, quell protests is leveraging a lot of these types of technologies for surveillance, for crowd control, all these types of things.
0: And I mean, for your professional take or research. What bothers you most about predictive policing or any recent developments in this field? I mean maybe you could just give us a, a map of what you're thinking about in that space just so, I mean, you know, we hear about it whenever, a, I don't know, an Atlantic piece goes buzzy <laughs> or something or a motherboard <laughs> piece. Yeah. Like, but I'm wondering what's your current map right now that you're paying attention to?
2: Yeah, so I think one of the things that uh, is really on my mind is a problem that exists in machine learning called interoperability. Um, and basically the way to think about interoperability is do we understand why the system makes the decision that it does? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting things that you have with a uh, modern day neural net, kind of the specific form of machine learning, is that it's really good at doing the task, but we don't really understand why it makes the decision that it does, right? So, like, for example, we can train a machine learning system to recognize, like, a cat and a photo, but, like, we, it's really hard for us to get into the system and be like, oh, was it because it had fuzzy ears or because it was this color or why exactly? And that has big implications for whether or not we want to deploy these systems for like managing public administration, right? Things like policing, because like we've actually have this hard limit on understanding like what the system is actually doing. Now, a lot of the researchers I talk to have a lot of faith that eventually we will figure these problems out. But my worry is that in the race to deploy the latest, greatest technology, we'll sort of put these systems in and if anything, they'll add and create more opacity, right? Which prevents us from even trying to figure out how to fix these systems, even if we all agree that we should have them, right? Yeah. And so, so I think that's one of the big, more wonky battles that are playing out, but really key if we think this technology is something that we rely on in the future.
1: I heard a pretty salient criticism that GPT-3 specifically made them afraid of a future where they're governed by algorithms that are only like imperceptibly bad enough that you can't that humans can't perceive that they're ineffective <laughs> in a certain way. Mm. And I do think that there is something there with like this very uncanny valley situation where you, what is off you can't really tell.
3: That well, feels like the ads you see online. They're not exactly bad, but they're just somehow they don't, I don't know, they don't hit well, something like just doesn't work. Well it's sort of
0: like this hacking Hacking kind of the thirty-minute countdown before the sale ends, you know, like on the website. It's (laughs) like all these shitty devices, right? Yeah, Yeah,
2: there is an interesting bit of data coming out of the ad space because right now everybody's like, oh, well, we can use machine learning to target ads even better than they were before. And some of the studies there are interesting because they basically indicate like machine learning is really good at finding people who would have bought the product anyways. Right. Right. And so the question about whether or not advertising actually changes their behavior at all. Or it's like essentially you paying money for someone to do what they're already going to do.
1: Right. I did read something about that basically a lot of, I think I don't know if it was eBay that stopped paying for the keyword eBay <laughs> and it made no impact. But there's always this issue of the ad department trying to get this most budget that they possibly can. So I'm sorry to keep going back to GPT-3, but it is exciting. And I just did read a lot of it. I have but another question too about GPT-3. I keep on
3: thinking you say like GTA 3 and I'm like... GTA. But- <laughs> so there's
1: the latest GTA is just super dope. I don't know if you've tried the multiplayer version. Um, sorry. Uh, yeah. Is there, do you think there's anything fundamentally new about it or is it just bigger?
2: I mean, I think one of the, so there's an interesting argument that much of the improvements we've seen in AI are in large part due to the fact that the models are bigger and we have bigger computers processing them. Right. A lot of the technology running under the hood is stuff that we've known for decades, like the basic principles of it. I think what some people will tell you is, ultimately, if we really want to build truly artificial intelligence, we're going to have to do more than just fitting curves and making nice correlations. How? How how do we do that? Are there any methods? Yeah, So one of the things that we funded when um, I was working at this uh, Ethics and Governance of AI initiative was we researched into what's known as causal modeling, which is specifically a set of methods that are trying to figure out how do we teach machines to understand causality and and build that into their reasoning framework. Interesting. But
0: I mean, it also has to be the kind of thing where if machine learning figures out how to, uh, Know that a photo is about a cat. It makes all these, I guess, little heuristics or rules that uh, help it discern that. But then it also has to be able to apply learning from one thing analogously to another thing. Part that's of that's like the uh, magic
3: human thing, analogy. Right? right. That's like the supposedly what differentiates us from other.
0: Right. That's a Douglas Hofstadter. Right. Analogies, the core of cognition uh, idea, I think. But is it getting better at analogy? Is that actually a problem in in programming these things? <laughs> Uh, it is actually, yeah. And in, in
2: natural language processing, right, which is basically using machine learning for for language, for words, right? Um, there's been one set of projects that have been essentially like, can we get the machine to, do, to solve analogy problems? Right. So you're like, king is to queen as man is to blank. And seeing whether or not the machine can accomplish that task. There's been huge progress made on that. I think it's still far away from what you think of as like human-like or superhuman intelligence.
0: I mean, I just imagine this, and now this all swirls in my head into a whole big thing about the platforms and and monopolies. But, you know, I I wonder if with GPT-3, for instance, the uh, search engines or Google or something, I mean, it gets so clogged with trash articles that you don't realize aren't even written by a human and that the internet could become considered a toxic space, like be kind of like how the World Wide Web used to be, which is kind of like janky and broken and untrustworthy. I wonder if things could get so bad it might push people back to actually more trustworthy information, because right now we're kind of stuck in this poisonous middle.
3: I have another side to that question, which is, how do you think these advancements have changed the way that we are interacting as humans separate from the devices, to whatever degree we can be understood as separate from our devices? Well,
2: I think about this in the context of RaffleCon, to go all the way back to the original part of the conversation. I think there was an era in designing social spaces online where we basically said, look, humans collectively are going to do the best job at, say, organizing information. Wikipedia is largely driven by lots and lots of people making edits. And I think at a certain point along the way, I think we basically said, well, no, maybe humans are actually really bad at doing that. And what can be better at that is algorithms, is machine learning systems. And so increasingly, we had things like the Facebook newsfeed or, you know, Twitter right now is driven algorithmically and you've got TikTok. Really what they're saying is that human curation just won't optimize as well as an algorithm that's looking at all the data. And I think it really has changed the way we interact with social spaces online. And maybe it actually is hitting this critical point where people are like, well, actually, all of this data, all this optimization didn't actually add up to anything. We actually want to return to some form of human curation because, like, even though it doesn't always get it right, we find it better, more interesting.
3: I, I wonder just personally, um, how, since Rafal Khan, how has your own relationship to online social spaces changed?
2: Uh, So in the context of one of the projects that I run, so I I do a little thing called the Trade Journal Cooperative. It's a subscription service where once a quarter I I send you a trade journal from a randomly selected industry. I I
1: subscribe today, actually. (laughs) Oh, cool. I'm (laughs) I'm quite interested. I I love trade journals, so I I like this project a lot.
2: Yeah. So like the past ones have been like Elevator World, right, which is like the leading journal of the elevator and escalator (laughs) industry. Amazing. Uh, like the one last time was uh, private investigator magazine, PI magazine. And, you know, as, as part of this, you sort of realize that like we spend so much time on Facebook, but there's like still like this like infinite long tail of incredibly niche forums that are out there. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I, I find myself spending more and more time just like hanging out on like farm talk, you know, and <laughs> just kind
1: of and go.
2: I just like I don't know. It feels like human scale in a way that um, that I enjoy, but it probably just means I'm getting old. I think. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you always wonder about that. <laughs> it's just you getting older. Um, how so. do you how do you find them?
2: Uh, a lot of it's just searching around online, yeah. um, and uh, and then most of these places, like the editor in chief, just has a phone number, so you just call them and you're like, hey. You don't know me, but could I buy like hundreds of back issues?
3: And they're so psyched because they don't know what to do with that closet of back issue. They guarantee you.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah, sure. Well, I'm, I'm, um, yeah. Uh, should we talk a bit about Awesome Foundation, but also just, I mean, platform cooperatism in general? Maybe you want to talk about your legal practice and uh, oh, yeah, this the Awesome little. Foundation, just what it is?
2: Uh, sure, definitely. I guess we'll start with Awesome Foundation. Um, so, Awesome Foundation is a project that I started about a decade ago. It's, it's a really super simple idea. You get 10 people together, they each commit to giving $100 a month, uh, and that forms a $1,000 grant. And that $1,000 grant is just given to someone that they think is doing an awesome project. That's the whole point. And um, it has been surprisingly popular. Like A lot of people have started chapters all around the world, and it's become this kind of global network of giving circles over time.
3: Can you give us a sampling of some of the projects that have been funded by Awesome
2: uh yeah sure we funded a, a whole variety of things um i'll give you two of the projects that i i, I really enjoy the most one of them is uh the chapter out in ottawa um you know that painting of the dogs playing poker yes um they basically just funded a bunch of people to dress up like dogs and play poker in a park just for and then basically it was sort of participatory you could like play poker with them so that was just like a funny project they did uh the chapter in dc also funded if you know that scene where indiana jones is running away from the big boulder they converted an alleyway so you could run away from a large boulder. So it's just like a bunch of like, a a lot of it's like kind of like small, not really pranks, but I think just like a lot of it is just like fun art stuff is is a lot of what we fund.
3: Okay, so I want to pause on that for a second. What, I know that like this kind of activity, and this is also maybe linked to Khan, this kind of absurdist play, um, seemingly without purpose. What purpose does it serve for you in your life or um, in communities? I mean, not to make it into something utilitarian, but but why, why, why do we make space and energy for it? in your view?
2: Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I can talk about the reasons why we started it in the first place. Um, I think lots of people got get lots of different things out of it at this point. Um, for me, uh, just sort of the ability to be able to, like, find people in your community that you may have never heard of before and would like to meet you know, I was basically living in Boston at the time and there's a lot of cool things going on, but at the time at least was like super fragmented. So you felt like you never were able to kind of like get connected to the right people. And so in some ways, Awesome Foundation is great just because like it creates a vehicle by which that type of connection can happen, right? People can just get in touch with you and say, hey, I've got this weird project, do you want to support it? And then you can help support them. And then, you know, in many cases, what happens is a lot of grantees become trustees themselves. Like they end up joining the chapters and giving money out. Mm. And so in some ways, the money is secondary to this constantly moving engine of social connections between people that might have not otherwise happened, which I, I personally find is super valuable.
3: Definitely. I mean, when I hear like Julian talk about war stories of 4chan from the audience, or when I hear about Khan, I do think of an era of the internet where there was this fascination with making screen space things become IRL?
0: De-virtualization.
3: De-virtualization. Is that the term for it? Yes. Okay. I mean, obviously, Comic-Con still exists and there's still a culture around this, but um, can you maybe speak about how that moment of the internet and internet slash IRL continuum is different now?
2: You know, I guess one of the things I think a lot about is how people have perceived or do perceive platforms like 4chan or like Anonymous. Uh, I think back in 2008, like we felt ambivalent about these spaces, right? That like, they were really terrible, but like maybe it was also a generator of potentially good things online as well. Um, I think that our mode right now, and maybe this is connected to the question of devirtualization is we have a much more threatening view of the internet. Uh, And I think in often cases, because it's very true, right? Like that actually things are are worse and things are more threatening online than they used to be. Right.
3: Right, at the same time, it's not virtualization with a layer of anonymity. It's not like 4chan. Yeah. No it's right, like right.
1: The de- virtualization that does come from 4chan is like spree shooting Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. very, very yeah. bad. Not posting. But I mean, or the or yeah. But it, it was <laughs> ten years ago.
0: Yeah. I just really think Facebook enforcing the real name policy was a, a big shift in how we thought about the internet, the kind of the moment where the digital dualism sort of idea became seriously challenged. But I don't know if you have any thoughts on the the IRL-URL divide and I guess the discourse around it. I mean, I think Facebook is interesting just as far as its impact on identity and like
1: forcing people to codify it and being very focused on that. And now
3: cancel culture being like some kind of outgrowth of being forced to identify yourself very, very specifically online according to, you know, certain gender norms and then resisting that.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I guess I think a little bit about like formative experiences online, because I, I think that it really informs how you think about how these systems work in general across the web. And Facebook was like an introduction to the web for a huge group of people and, and has really changed some of our expectations about how communities online are governed or what behaviors online are permissible. And and so I, I do think that there's this imprinting that occurs based on when you experience the
0: web. Um, but with Awesome Foundation, and to bring it out a bit, you basically came up with a really simple governance model or like a platform that was able to be repeated or duplicated that actually enables people to get together and accomplish something. and. I personally kind of have an interest in platform cooperatism. And, you know, I wonder why there aren't, uh, say, local versions of Uber or why there aren't local versions of the monopoly platforms that we see. I mean, I wonder if you have thoughts or hopes for platform cooperatism in the future. I mean, looking into all the things you do, I started synthesizing this big fantasy uh, about how the ad bubble will pop and the monopolies <laughs> will fall because they'll have no ad money and suddenly we can have localized platform co-ops uh, <laughs> ruling the internet uh, finally. Um, I, I doubt that's going to happen, but... Um, Yeah, I mean, this also, I guess, ties in your legal practice, because I think the legal barrier is actually one aspect of why platform cooperatives might be difficult to enact or get together. So I guess my question is, like, what do you see being the future and what are the opportunities that you see coming?
2: So I think the nice thing about Awesome Foundation is we started it in part because we looked into what it would mean to create a nonprofit in the United States. And it would take forever. The overhead, the paperwork you'd have to file was like super complicated. Uh, And so we said, all right, well, how about we just like call ourselves a foundation and just start giving out cash, right? And it just turned out that it was a great way of lowering the cost, creating your own philanthropic entity. Like, you didn't have to know some crazed billionaire who had a crazed agenda. You could just get 10 friends together and, like, start doing this if you could afford it, right? Which I think is a proper critique of the awesome foundation work. And so I guess the question is, like, how do you lower the barrier to people creating institutions that we think of as extremely large and incredibly expensive to create? And I think maybe this is part of the platform cooperatism idea, which is, like, people want to start building small-scale versions of enormous platforms. And, you know, I think the complication, at least in the social media space, is the classic argument of the network effect, right? Which is like, oh, well, you want to be on Facebook because everybody you know is already on Facebook. And it's possible that these platforms, over time, make people so tired and so depressed. They really do want to have something that's small scale and that they can customize and have be their own. Right. And so I, I don't know. I guess it, part of it what, of what we're betting on is like what people will prefer over time. And I guess the question is like, will people prefer these small scale, homemade, and occasionally like quite faulty systems over large scale and streamlined and? Uh, yeah, I guess uh, to be an optimist, you sort of have to believe in the former. But I think it's anyone's guess as to where we end. I think
3: yeah. They could oscillate, too, right? I mean, ornament versus functionality, it probably applies here, too, where it will oscillate back and forth between bespoke, small and very streamlined, larger systems.
0: I mean, I also think, though, looking at Awesome Foundation, I just thought, I mean, what if uh, 10 creative producers got together in every city and I mean a lot of our recent conversations have made us realize like how unbelievably important local politics mm-hmm. are and how just because people don't go and vote in like local primaries that's like the reason why there isn't in certain areas like criminal justice reform yeah. literally because it actually takes place on the local level and people don't give a shit the- I mean I just think like taking something like the Awesome Foundation what if it's a group of 10 creative producers and they look at, they meet, they look at local elections, they pledge a certain amount of money a month. They do an ad campaign for a good candidate and promise an ad buy or, I mean, awesome foundations spread into all these cities repeating the same model because I think the outcome often was a bit spectacular, funny, buzzy, like got attention and was fun. People want to be a part of it. But why not? Have these sort of dual power exportable uh, frameworks that you're able to duplicate. I just think it could be a really effective framework for some sort of dual power or just Mm. some sort of grassroots organizing. It's all it takes 10 people and $100 a month,
1: essentially. I mean, I was just thinking about, yeah, awesome foundation being opposed to having, you know, eccentric billionaires fund your projects and that. Sorry to bring it back to OpenAI and GPT-3, but OpenAI <laughs> is, you know, funded by eccentric billionaires. It's the for-profit sure. arm yeah. of a philanthropic or non-profit mm-hmm. funded by Elon Musk and some other people. And of course, you know, OpenAI is dependent on massive compute for it to work. Like that's, mm-hmm. it needs decentralization. So what, how could there be an awesome foundation version of OpenAI? Would there be something mm-hmm. advantageous to that? Is there any like actual drawbacks you can see from OpenAI being funded by monopolists?
2: So the the question of reproducibility is really key here. So to give you an example of like a awesome foundation style model, I tried that failed for a while. I was doing these tours of infrastructure around the Bay Area, so visiting bridges and water treatment plants, and you know that sort of thing. And we tried to basically launch it on the same federated model as Awesome Foundation, which is if you want to become a infrastructure observatory chapter, you just have to basically say you want to be one. We'll put you on your website and then you can use all of our previous tours as a way to convince people locally that like they should let you go see all these things. And the problem there was that taking the tour, arranging the tour, getting the people together was all something that was like a lot harder to reproduce Mm -hmm. than get 10 people together to like chip money in to give it out to something fun each month. And so it became a lot more costly and expensive because you have to find someone who's willing to like go through the trouble of like chasing after your local water treatment plant to let you do a tour. And I think this has relevance to the GPT-3 case because I think like there's actually a lot of kind of inequality built into AI largely because of the intense material resources, the data you need, the computing power you need and so on. And that means we sort of need to change AI to make it more accessible to more people. There are these nascent areas of research which are can we make machine learning work with a lot less data or a lot less computing power? And and I think if you're able to crack some of those technical problems, you actually really change access to this kind of technology The problem is that people who are largely funding it have no real incentive to fund that kind of
0: work. One response, and this, of course, after what we talk about just comes totally out of left field, but one response you'll you'll hear from people against certain uh, inequality-reducing political demands, say, is that you won't be able to motivate the the billionaire geniuses to to keep working and that they'll all Atlas shrug away. Um, And you seem to be like kind of person who could have just gone startup or Followed that kind of path, but you, you actually focus more on true disruption of these bigger industries than on cashing out. And I wonder what's motivated you that made it all worth it, or that makes it all worth it.
2: Uh, well, thank you. That's very nice of you to say. Um, I mean, I, I guess I just, because, like, I think the startup path paints itself as very disruptive, but it actually, in fact, is, like, really boring. I don't <laughs> know, is that maybe too simple of an answer? That actually, like, in fact, even the most successful startups follow the same narrative arc. And ultimately, maybe the problem with it is that it's actually just not very interesting.
3: right. I mean, so I guess uh, pivoting off of that and you're a self-professed polymath with hands in all sorts of honey jars. Do you think (laughs) that this is now the prototype for the worker of the middle middle section of this century at least? Or how do you view your own job description?
2: Yeah, I don't know. I guess uh, at least for me, I I find that kind of description, I guess it's a little grandiose, right? I mean, I think I just have a problem where I can't hold down a real job for any length of time. (laughs) But I mean, I, I think if the question is like, Do we think more people will sort of like be precariously teetering between lots of different projects in order to stay afloat? I think the answer is yes, probably.
3: Okay, so then what's going to happen to all of us who are teetering between all these various projects? Do you see any more molar organization that's already starting to emerge for those who have job descriptions that are less conventional?
2: Part of the problem is like, okay, if you believe that the 20th century institutions are like deteriorating very quickly, there's sort of two points of view, right? Like one of them is we need to reform them as quickly as possible so we can keep the ship afloat. The other one is the ship already has too many holes, we're going to have to figure out how to self-help.
3: Yes. And
2: I increasingly sort of lean in this latter direction. So I think there is a need to try to like engineer what these institutions will look like.
3: Yeah, that that tracks.
1: <laughs> I have just one last. Is the singularity near and will AI solve our problems? Uh, no and no. Okay.
3: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Great. Tim, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks. Take it uh, easy, guys. I'll
0: check in in 12 years from now. Okay. <laughs> okay. Hi. Ciao. Thank you for listening to the New Models Podcast, and thank you, Tim Huang, for joining us. Tim's book, Subprime Attention Crisis, Advertising, and The Time Bomb at the Heart of the Internet, is out now. Since we recorded this podcast earlier this year, Tim's also become chair of COGSEC, a conference focusing on the practical countering of online disinformation and propaganda. And he started Defense Charts, a Twitter account that aggregates the barbaric depraved atrocities of aesthetics in defense industry PowerPoint presentations. For more, visit timhuang.org. Link is in the description. To join the New Models community, listen to our subscriber-only conversational episodes and radio plays, and become part of the most active, intellectually, creatively generative, and culturally non-toxic Discord of any podcast Discord in existence, visit patreon.com slash newmodels. A big thank you always to our community for their invaluable participation. The main aggregator and central node of New Models can be found at newmodels.io. Our email is desk at newmodels.io. Thank you for listening and see you next episode.